Yesterday we sang a song called Parama Karuna. I was wondering what you all thought of this song from yesterday. Do you remember when we sang this? Did it leave an impression? Singing the song? What kind of impression? Yes? Go, Rangi, go ahead. So, two things. First thing, that uh, out of all the incarnations, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Nityananda Prabhu are the topmost. It says, Sabavatara Sarva Shirumani. And then they're most merciful. Yeah, that really helps. Because we're looking for a place to put our attention. And mostly, as Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu explained, we're finding insufficient places to concentrate. In other words, the object of our attention after some time becomes dull or we become tired of it and therefore we need something else. But when we find the place where we can give our full attention where we'll never be disappointed and that object is actually increasing in beauty and our interest is never broken. As Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, manmana bhavamad bhakto, just think of me. And there's a lot of things that we can think of that sooner or later become boring, tiring. But when we think of the topmost form of Krishna in the form of Lord Chaitanya and Lord Ananda, then we can become fascinated and go on thinking of them continually. That's the best and the most, the most beneficial aspect of human life is to be able to place one's attention on Krishna. Prabhu? I want to highlight on the most merciful incarnation. So, like he is here to show us the path to spiritual world, which is much more better than the material world. Here we, for everything we have to struggle, we have to ask for it, we have to pay for it. Here to go to spiritual world, he just giving us free access. Just follow this path and it's a guaranteed return. And you appreciate that? It's highly appreciable. Yeah. I can tell you like that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good point. Any other points? Yes, Shraddha. I actually also like the, the last words of the, of the song where it said that um, because I have got so many attachments to the material world, that's why I don't have a liking for this movement where we chant the names of the Lord. And it said that that's why Yamaraj is giving me punishment of not liking it. So not liking the movement itself is a punishment. It's a kind us. of punishment, yeah. yeah. Nice. Radha Mohan Prabhu, left field. <clears throat> Prabhu, we were, I, was very, I was delighted yesterday when you sang this song because at least for devotees in Toronto, this is, uh, it's like a, it's a very special bhajan. We have been singing it every time we go out. So it's like a Sankirtan spirit to it. 
and uh, I can't even remember how we started it, but we I think I heard in a lecture the speaker was saying that this is the like an anthem for Sankirtan devotees. This is where I caught the bug in Toronto. <laughs> you guys infected me. <laughs> Bhakti Mark Swami was there. We were chanting it uh, when the uh, for, for greeting the deities right afterwards, Bhajan. And both Bhakti Marg Swami and Gora were chanting it. And they sang it in a way that was a little different from what I heard it. And that, when I first heard it, the way they were singing, I thought, no, that's not how you sing it. And then I couldn't get that tune out of my head. And then I kind of got attached to it. It's like, Paramakaruna Pahundvijana Nitai Gora Chandra That Paramakaruna that um, Paramakaruna Pahundvijana, that part. That was, I'd never heard it like that. So that, uh, we'll sing it like that tonight. We did it kind of yesterday, although we were all singing it slightly differently. We'll just try that, the Bhakti Marg's Bhakti Marg way. Thank you. Yeah, so it's important, it's important to become attached to something that is eternal. And as Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, every living entity is attached. That's the living experience. Is to live means to be attached to something. We can't be unattached permanently. And bhakti means to get attached to Vaishnavas and to get attached to the transcendental sound vibration. And any way that one can do that, Rupa Goswami says, Yena Tena Pakarina Manak Krishna Naveshayat. One way or another, find how you can get a, your mind attached to, to Krishna and the transcendental sound vibration. So that'll be the perfection. So we see the sweet meditation that Srila Lochan Das Thakur has given us. Lord Nitai and Lord Gorachandra are very merciful. They are the essence of all incarnations. The specific significance of these incarnations is that they introduced a process of chanting and dancing that is simply joyful. Boy, what a kirtan today, coming back on the bus and then from the bus to the ashram. I, I'm so glad I, I didn't miss that. That is always going to be stuck in my mind of, charging down the road. Vinod Kovita had a look in his eye because I think I mentioned like we should hit the ground with great energy once we get on the campus and he really went for it. He kept that pitch going all the way. Wasn't it amazing? And uh, people were coming out of everywhere. Just go ahead. People were coming out of houses and looking down from rooftops. Like, what is that energy? That's the kind of energy everyone's hankering for, looking for. And if, if you can be in a kirtan like that even one time, then your whole life can change. Everything's different from that on. Never be the same. Number two, my dear brothers, I request that you just worship Lord Chaitanya and Nityananda with firm conviction and faith. If one wants to be Krishna conscious by this process, one has to give up his engagement in sense gratification. Become absorbed in worshiping Lord Chaitanya and and simply chant Hare Krishna, Hare Hare, without any material motive. 
My dear brothers, just try to examine this. Within the three worlds, there is no one like Lord Chaitanya and, or Lord Nityananda. Just like today when we were at Srivasangam, we saw the most um, inspiring sight of all. That was the Panchatapha with Lord Nishingadev in front of them, right in the middle of, of the altar Srivasangam. You see, the last two or three years, we came to Srivasangam last, and the doors were closed. And although we, we picked up the energy from that place, ground zero for the Sankirtan movement, everyone felt it. This time was special because the doors were open and we saw the, the deities there looking back at us and giving us their mercy. Their merciful qualities are so great that upon hearing them, even birds and beasts cry and stones melt. But I, Lochan Das, regret that I am entrapped by sense gratification. I have no attraction for the lotus feet of Lord Chaitanya and Lord Ananda, and therefore Yamaraj, the superintendent of death, is punishing me by not allowing me to be attached, attracted to this movement. So Prabhupada sang that song. He introduced it to the devotees, and it reminds me that... At various uh, stages of the Krishna conscious movement, Prabhupada introduced various songs for the devotees to sing. Previously unheard, he gave us the Guru Vashtakam and the Guru Sri Guru Vandanam. And then this song and other songs followed. And seemingly, uh, once he gave them, they became a, a, an e eternal part of the, the practice of Krishna consciousness for those who are following the uh, standard in ISKCON. It became a, a, a standard practice and a, a, part of, a, part, a way of life for devotees to hear these songs. And probably will go on for thousands of years singing them in, in this way. And uh, as Prabhupada writes in the eighth canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam that by practicing singing bhajans and, and shlokas and hearing again and again while one has the opportunity the songs and the verses become ingrained in the consciousness and as Krishna writes or speaks to Arjuna on the battlefield of Krukshetra and as memorialized in the Bhagavad Gita Krishna says Yang yang vapi smaran bhavam tajatyante kalevaram tamtami vaiti kontia sadatad bhava bhavitaha. And that is, whatever one remembers at the time of death, one will attain. And Prabhupada writes elsewhere that whatever subject matter most attracts the attention of a dying person is the indication of their next destination. The bhava, he says, in the verse is a kind of overall inclination that we have to hear a certain kind of vibration. Actually, Jiva Goswami mentions that we can gauge how we're advancing in devotional service by how inclined we are to hear a transcendental sound vibration. If we have an urgent need to hear, we know that there, here, just transcendental sound vibration, this is a sign of, of recovery of spiritual health. And if it's somewhere in the middle, 
that I can take it or leave it. Uh, we're sort of medium. And if we're not interested at all, and we'd rather hear something else, then this is a, um, a sign that we may need to have some uh, special medicine and maybe take some, uh, what do they have those, Ayurvedic clinics where you go for a few weeks? Panchakarma? You needed some kind of panchakarma for hearing and chanting to revive that. It's important to stay in that because it's easy enough to slip away also and start listening to other things instead. And so it's not fanatical at all to prefer hearing transcendental sound vibration. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Or if it is fanatical, it's a good kind of fanaticism to be insistent upon hearing uh, about Krishna and to stay absorbed in the vibration. Uh, Rupa Goswami says, Tanama Rupa Charitadi Sikirtananu Smritya Kramena Rasana Manasini Yoja Tananuragi Jananugami Kalam Nayeda Kilamitya Padesha Saram That is, if you want to know the essence of all advice, he says, organize your life around the principle of hearing and chanting and performing devotional activities. Everyone has a different lifestyle and has slightly different patterns in their life. But the main point is, no matter what situation of life you're in, is to make sure that close to the, that one is close to the transcendental sound vibration. I think Navina Prabhu today quoted from Lord Kapiladev, although he didn't mention it, one should hear from the right source for a long time. And... That means here as long as you can uh, whenever you get the opportunity. So since we have the opportunity now, let's uh, try a, a trick I learned when I first joined the Hare Krishna movement about how, how to um, supplement one's spiritual diet on a daily basis. Like taking a, the best kind of... Uh, multiple spiritual vitamin. Shall we take a, a spiritual vitamin now? Uh, I met uh, a devotee when I first joined the, the Krishna Conscious Movement who had been instructed by Prabhupada. To, every day he told them to recite the Sri Upanishad. I'm not going to say re let's recite the Sri Upanishad, but we'll do our chapter of Bhagavad Gita, or at least our half a chapter. We would sit with our bhakta program outside the... Uh, the Mangalartik, and then recite the whole Sri Shapanishad because uh, the, the, the leader of that program had been told by Prabhupada that he should recite it every day. And he did. And then I found out later that Prabhupada also had um, advised that his followers chant a chapter of Bhagavad Gita every day. So this is a neat trick to uh, add this into one's spiritual diet. And it's elusively simple. It seems to, see, to be rather simple, but it's really profound because these are the words of Krishna himself. And Bhagavad Gita has such potency. It's mentioned in the Pantratrik Vidhi that if you recite one chapter of Bhagavad Gita every day, then it frees you from any offenses that you make when you're doing your uh, seva puja. So Bhagavad Gita will save you if you take shelter. 
In the stage of perfection called trance or samadhi, one's mind is completely restrained from material mental activities by practice of yoga. This perfection is characterized by one's ability to see the self by the pure mind and to relish and rejoice in the self. In that joyous state, one is situated in boundless transcendental happiness realized through transcendental senses. Established thus, one never departs from the truth, and upon gaining this, he thinks there is no greater gain. Being situated in such a position, one is never shaken, even in the midst of greatest difficulty. This indeed is actual freedom from all miseries arising from material contact. It really calls us to read some of the purport, doesn't it? Do you agree? Yeah, so um, what did you hear in the verse so far that attracted your attention? Yes? Okay, the mic is coming to you in seven seconds or less. That it's possible to enjoy within without having to have any contact with the material world. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. It's, uh, it's rather attractive, isn't it? The, the types of uh, happiness that are being described here. What else did you hear? Yes? That once established in, this, in that truth, um, we realize there's no greater gain. And there's freedom. That person is not shake, does not shake in the, even amidst adversities. Or the greatest difficulty, right? There, There's a lot of great difficulties in life. And to be able to cope with them would be extraordinary because normally people are very much disturbed when difficulties arise in their life. So it sounds compelling, doesn't it? So shall we hear more about that? Yes, there's two more. It's such an exciting verse. As we were reading this, I was reflecting that the first book that I got was Science of Self-Realization and the Perfection of Yoga. And this was actually the first thing I read on the back of Perfection of Yoga. And I was just reflecting back to reading that. And now just being here now, it's very, uh, it's very surreal just how, how real the verse actually is. When you apply the process of Perfection of Yoga, the things mentioned in it actually become self-evident. I'm just reflecting on reading it now and where I am now. Nice. Yeah, the, the um, Bhagavad Gita is attractive to living entities. Anywhere someone hears this, it could attract their mind. You have one. Um, I like the line which says, this perfection is characterized by the ability to see the self by the pure mind. And it reminded me of the first line of Shikshastakam, which says, Cheto Darpanamarjanam. So if the mirror is clean, then we can, we can see ourselves. Nice. That's very good. Yeah. The first points that Krishna makes when Arjuna asks him what is the symptom of somebody who is fixed in consciousness, Krishna says, Atmanatushta, that the person is able to uh, feel satisfaction in the self. So that's a, that's a thing. It's definitely available for somebody who's taking to the process of transcendental life Hare Krishna I really liked when you are established in this you are 
free from the miseries arising from the material contacts. <laughs> yeah, sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? All right, let's hear the purport. By, by practice of yoga, one becomes gradually detached from material concepts. By practice of yoga, one becomes gradually detached from material concepts. What is a material concept? Can somebody give me a specific example of a material concept? This is my daughter. Havi Prabhu, by the way, we'd like to welcome Havi Prabhu. With it. He said no. Okay. Thank you, So wherever there's hearing and chanting going on, that's where you'll find Havi Prabhu. I just discovered there he is. We're hearing and chanting, and he's in here. Okay. Yes, Aham Amiti, I am this body, and everything related to my body. Can you be mine. more specific? Uh, I am a man. I am from this country. I am from this nation, from this Kotra. And how is that? How is that a material concept? I'm not this body, so it becomes material when I identify with something that doesn't really exist. It didn't exist in the past. It's not going to exist in the future. So it's an illusion in the middle. Okay. Thank you very much. There's there are various ways in which the Srimad Bhagavatam goes to, uh, to dispel our idea about I am my body and stories again and again. One that comes to mind is Chitraketu. When Chitraketu had a strong desire to have a son and it didn't seem possible under the circumstances that uh, he had tried many, many times and wasn't able to get a son, especially important for a king. So you can imagine how consumed he was with this idea of having a son. And then he met the sage Angira, who gave him a benediction that he could get a son, but he told him that he will be, that is the son, will be the source of both happiness and lamentation. And Chitraketu thought, well, everybody has a little problem with their kids. I mean, you know, but how bad could it be? And when the son was born by the mercy of the sage, the king was jubilant, and so was his queen who gave birth. He had many queens. And the kingdom, all the people became happy and celebrated. And now he felt full and happy by having a son. But then there was a reversal of fortune because the queens of, of Chitraketu that didn't get a son, and there were many of them, felt uh, left out. And they noticed that the king was giving disproportionate amount of attention to the queen that had given him a son. And so they conspired to poison the child. And that's what they did. So you can imagine what might have been the, the king's reaction. Well, you don't have to imagine. You can read about it in the Bhagavatam, but First of all, the maidservant had discovered that the little baby was lifeless in the crib. Eyes were upturned. And she began to wail. And then, hearing the wailing, other members of the household came in to see what had happened, including the queen, whose child it was. 
And she uh, couldn't remain conscious because it was, she was so distraught. And then the king, hearing about what was going on in the palace, came in and he fainted and came back to consciousness and fainted again and was so disturbed by the situation that he could um, hardly uh, stay conscious. And that's when uh, uh, Narada and Angira came back and in order to give a spiritual lesson to the king, they induced the, the child, the soul, to come back into that body. And confront, they confronted the soul and said, you know, why did you leave? Why did you leave your, so unceremoniously? And your parents here are lamenting for you. And the child said, I'm sorry, but I don't recognize these parents because I've had so many. I'm just passing through. That's an interesting perspective because when we see we have a little baby, we think this is my baby and my child and so forth. And then to have the, a little baby at that stage say, you know, I don't know you guys that well or at all. I don't recognize you. You're just parents. I'm just passing through. That's a different kind of perspective. And from that experience, the king was jolted out of his concept that this is my child and his intense desire to have a child and so forth. And he went on through uh, his sadhana that he received from Narada Muni and chanting mantra to be able to come to see Lord Shankarshan face to face. So this is an example out of many, many throughout the Srimad Bhagavatam urging us and to come out of the material concept of life. And Prabhupada continues. Apparently this uh, doesn't wait if you give it, if you don't give it enough attention. It moved on without me. Okay, the per- where were we? Twenty? Three, right? Sorry for the delay. Here we are. By practice of yoga, one becomes gradually detached from material concepts. This is the primary characteristic of the yoga, yoga principle. And after this, one becomes situated in trance or samadhi which means that the yogi realizes the super-soul through transcendental mind and intelligence without any of the misgivings of identifying the self with the super-self. The Patanjali system, some unauthorized, some unauthorized commentators, is that what you have up there? Because it looks like I have a typo here. Okay, that's missing. Yoga process is more or less based on the Patanjali system. Some unauthorized commentators try to identify the individual soul with the super soul, and the monists think this to be liberation. But they do not understand the real purpose of the Patanjali system of yoga. There is an acceptance of transcendental pleasure in the Patanjali system, but the monists do not accept this transcendental pleasure out of fear of jeopardizing the theory of oneness. 
The duality of knowledge and knower is not accepted by the non-dualist. But in this verse, transcendental pleasure, realized through transcendental senses, is accepted. And this is corroborated by Patanjali Muni, the famous exponent of the yoga system. The great sage declares in his yoga sutras, Purusharta shunyayan, shunyanam gunanam pratiprasava kaivalyam swarupra patishtava chitti shaktiriti. This chitti shakti, or internal potency, is transcendental. Purusharta means material religiosity, economic development, etc. Excuse me, sense gratification, and at the end, the attempt to become one with the Supreme. This quote-unquote oneness with the Supreme is called kaivalyam by the monist. But according to Patanjali, this kaivalyam is an internal or transcendental potency by which the living entity becomes aware of his constitutional position. That's noteworthy, isn't it? But according to Patanjali, this kaivalyam is an internal or transcendental potency by which the living entity becomes aware of his constitutional position. In the words of Lord Chaitanya, this state of affairs is called Cheto Dharpana Marjanam, or clearance of the impure mirror of the mind. This clearance is actually liberation, or Bhava Mahadhavagni, Nirvapanam. The theory of Nirvana also preliminary corresponds with this principle. In the Bhagavatam 2.10.6, this is called Swarupena Vyavastiti. It sounds like a Kumbh Mela is forming right outside the door. The Bhagavad Gita also confirms this situation in this verse. After nirvana or material cessation, there is the manifestation of spiritual activities or devotional service to the Lord, known as Krishna consciousness. In the words of the Bhagavatam, Swarupena Vyavastiti, this is the real life of the living entity. Maya, or illusion, is the condition of spiritual life contaminated by material infection. Liberation from this material infection does not mean destruction of the original eternal position of the living entity. Patanjali also accepts this by his words, kaivalyam swarupa pratishtava chitishaktiriti. In the yoga system, as described in this chapter, there are two kinds of samadhi called sampragyata samadhi and asampragyata samadhi. When one becomes situated in the transcendental position by various philosophical researches, he is said to have achieved sampragyata samadhi. In the asampragyata samadhi, there is no longer any connection with mundane pleasure, for one is then transcendental to all sorts of happiness derived from the senses. When the yogi is once situated in that transcendental position, he is never shaken from it. Unless the yogi is able to reach this position, he is unsuccessful. Today's so-called yoga practice, which involves various sense pleasures, is contradictory. A yogi indulging in sex and intoxication is a mockery. Even those yogis who are atta- attracted by the siddhis, perfections, in the process of yoga are not perfectly situated. If yogis are attracted by the byproducts of yoga, then they cannot attain the stage of perfection as is stated in this verse. Persons, therefore, indulging in the make-show practice of gymnastic feats of cities should know that the aim of yoga is lost in that way. 
the best practice of yoga in this age is Krishna consciousness, which is not baffling. A Krishna conscious person is so happy in his occupation that he does not aspire after any other happiness. There are many impediments, especially in this age of hypocrisy, to practicing hatha yoga, dhyana yoga, and jnana yoga. But there is no such problem in executing karma yoga or bhakti yoga. As long as the material body exists, one has to meet the demands of the body, namely eating, sleeping, defending, and mating. But a person who is in pure bhakti yoga or in Krishna consciousness does not arouse the senses while meeting the demands of the body. Rather, he accepts the bare necessities of life, making the best use of a bad bargain and enjoys transcendental happiness in Krishna consciousness. He is callous toward incidental occurrences such as accidents, disease, scarcity, and even the death of a most dear relative. But he is always alert to execute his duties in Krishna consciousness or bhakti yoga. Accidents never deviate him from his duty. As stated in the Bhagavad Gita 2.14, Agama paino nityas tamstitikshashvabharata He endures all such incidental occurrences because he knows that they come and go and do not affect his duties. In this way, he achieves the highest perfection in yoga practice. How did you like that? You liked it okay? What did you like about it? Yes. Don't worry, you can be proactive and just mention whatever's parts that um, are on your mind because when you reflect it back, you'll find out it's kind of good what you're thinking. Go ahead. This this idea of the Chitti Shakti, is that equivalent to the Sarup Shakti? Well, in the, in the preliminary stages we're talking about here, there's there's more of a um, introduction, is like an introductory uh, position. Brahma Bhuta Prasanatma Na Shochati Na Kangshati a clearing of, of the consciousness and realizing one's you know, transcendental position. Mm-hmm. The Surup Shakti is described by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu to, to uh, Sanatana Goswami as a stage in which the ray of internal energy is touching the heart of the practitioner and churning the heart, making it soft, and he's beginning to experience spiritual emotion. In general, we're talking about coming in contact more and more with the internal potency, because that's how the, the purification takes place, but as far as the swoop shakti goes, there's more specific or, uh, definitions talking about. My reflection, though, was... Hold that a little closer, please. Oh, sorry. My reflection is that it's nice knowing that spiritual life isn't just, it's not static. There's activities involved because that makes it very exciting because variety means, activities generally implies variety. So it's nice to know there's all sorts of things that we can be doing. Yes. Yes. 
could you please explain this sentence that uh, there is an acceptance of transcendental pleasure in the patanjali system but the monists do not accept this transcendental pleasure out of fear of jeopardizing the theory of oneness here it looks like uh, the concept of pleasure is not compatible with the theory of oneness but uh, the monists or the brahma um, brahman believers uh, their idea is that when you are in that brahman state that oneness state you are full of pleasure so why is this in not compatible what is the well, radhika raman prabhu spoke on this when he gave his seminar about mayavad and it's what you first said there's this there is a sense that when you're um when you're one or starting with the idea that you're experiencing some some pleasure there's the pleasure and there's the experiencer there's two things the idea of oneness it doesn't allow for that who's who's experiencing the pleasure as my god brother shridhar maharaj used to say would you rather be be a sh- sugar cube or eat a sugar cube of course a lot of people don't take sugar these days but the fact is the that's the that's their um hang up is the, they're trying to reach this state where there's uh no duality which is um contradicted by this idea that i'm experiencing pleasure a couple more reflections yes one two three i like this on these lines where prabhupada is describing maya or illusion is as the condition of spiritual life contaminated by material infection yeah this is uh uh something prabhupada elaborates on in the verse brahmarpanam brahmahavir brahmagnau brahmano hutam brahma brahmaiva tenagantavyam brahma karma samadina in which krishna is describing how when you engage matter in the service of the lord then it becomes transcendentalized and the example that prophet frequently gave was that of an iron rod when you put an iron rod in fire that becomes fire after exposure and similarly prophet said material elements are actually a covered spirit when they're reengaged in the service of the lord then they become they regain their spiritual nature it's a good uh trick to know. Yes. I like the last paragraph where Prabhupada was it seemed like the much of the first part of the purport was very kind of high philosophy and then I felt like the last paragraph was really making it very practical and he was explaining how one does not arouse the senses um when meeting the demands of the body or something. and i like to the reference from second chapter explaining that a devotee is tolerant of so many different uh disturbances in the material world and they stay fixed on their goal yes and this is and if we pass the microphone back to havi prabhu in the corner krishna says in the fifth chapter of the gita brahmanyadaya karmani sangham tyakva kurotiya lipyatena sapapena padma patram ivambasa that the the devotee lives in the world without touching it just like the lotus flower lives in the water without touching the water 
And it's an interesting way you mentioned uh, that Prabhupada says that uh, even while fulfilling the necessities of the body, that senses don't become agitated because there's a different um, emphasis. The devotees engaging the senses, as Prabhupada said, just like they're on a spool. He only takes them out to use them in Krishna's service and the interaction then doesn't agitate the mind. Have you, Prabhu? Uh, it coincides with what the Prabhu was at the same segment. But a person who is impure, back to yoga, or Krishna consciousness does not arouse to the, uh, the senses while meeting the demands of the body. The concept of, uh, of not arouse the senses while meeting the demands. Yes. Why did you pick that out? It, it, um, it's a state of mind, it's a state of consciousness. It, it, it is a technique. Uh, and uh, it just caught my attention. Thank you very much. Any other points? One, two. Three. So, Gurudev, I like the point where it says that uh, there are many impediments in these different types of yogas, dhyana yoga, hatha yoga, uh, but there are no such problems in executing bhakti yoga. So, uh, what I understood from this is Bhakti Yoga, it connects with the pleasure that we talked about, tra transcendental pleasure. If you have that pleasure, then that work or that activity is, there are no impediments in that activity. Yes, I believe Prabhupada mentioned both Karma Yoga and Bhakti Yoga, as the Karma Yoga is a preliminary stage before Bhakti, and it's completely natural to engage the senses in Krishna service. So that's uh, the admonition given by Rupa Goswami in the Bhaktura Samrita Sindhu, where he says, Anyabhilashita shunyam jnana karma anyanabhritam anukulyena krishnanu shilanam bhakti ruchate. And the word shil, or shilanam, the root is shil, which means to cultivate. And it means there's two aspects. One is external and the other is internal. Externally, it means to use the senses in a Krishna's service. So the impediments in the yoga system, we find Prabhupada quoting again and again about Vishramrita and others who had engaged in restraining the senses in meditation and then later on had succumbed to the senses and their demands. The benefit of bhakti is one's always engaging the senses and the mind in Krishna's service. And because they're satisfied by that cultivation, then there's a way in which uh, the senses become like uh, serpents with no fangs. And nobody's afraid of a serpent with no fangs. In fact, the holy name is so powerful that it's mentioned about Ajamil in the sixth canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam, that even though for some time he went on with his life that had become degraded, his activities didn't have an adverse effect upon him because he had already been indemnified by the power of chanting the holy name. This shouldn't be um, taken for granted that that would be the seventh offense. But this is something that is pointed out in that section of the Bhagavatam that if you chant Hare Krishna, the 
process is so potent that the sinful reactions of the past are nullified. And so the question was asked, so how is it that even after chanting, he went on committing sinful activities? And Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur gives the answer that although he was doing those things, they weren't having any effect. It was like being bitten by a snake with no fangs. So really the bhakti process means that uh, we're taking shelter of Krishna and depending on his help to overcome the, the um, attraction between the, the senses and their objects. And because there is variety, as you pointed out, and there's engagement in all kinds of activities, uh, the senses actually become satisfied. I had to perform a, a ceremony in Dallas, Texas, it was an initiation from a devotee who was um, from a, a Baptist background. And before the uh, initiation, I had had some um, interaction uh, um, with some of her family members about, about the initiation. They weren't too happy about it. And um, I was thinking about... Uh, how I was going to present it because they were coming to the to, to the initiation, and so, and I was thinking about uh, Christianity before I I went there, and um, there's not a lot of um, external um, attractive imagery in uh, Christianity that I could find. In fact, it's a little stark, especially in Protestantism. There's a sense of, uh, like if you go into a church, sometimes you see a cross, just a cross. I don't even know if you see the Christ form on the cross. You just see the cross. And there's not much else. And uh, I was sort of in my mind, the point was I was comparing and contrasting Christian consciousness with the idea of Christianity because I had to present to a mixed audience. And so when I got to the Dallas Temple, anybody been there before? Okay, so it's a very opulent temple. There was no, no expense spa spared in uh, creating that temple room. There's a, there's a lighting system, so in the morning when you're chanting Japa, right after Mangalarti, it looks like the sun's coming up in the background, just a little glow, and then you have world-class art, a transcendental art. And there's no way other to describe it. It's, it's actually spiritually sensual, the art. You see Krishna with his friends, with his girlfriends, with his boyfriends, with his family, and they're really enjoying in amazing ways. And the art itself is very rich and detailed and so forth. And you have that, and then... If you walk into a Hare Krishna temple and you're, you're unacquainted, we may take it for granted, but, you know, how do you like, you know, a plate of fire coming at you <laughs> at 5 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> and then also, you know, you're just sitting there and someone comes up, swabs your hand, and you know, there's, <laughs> there's some, you know, really powerful uh, scent. You know, you get the aromatherapy, and then there's fire and the incense and then the singing and dancing at 4.30 a.m. My father once came and visited me. I left home when I, was, when I was young and then 
My father visited me once in this St. Louis temple. It was an old Brahmacharya ashram. So he stayed overnight there. And he got up from Mangalartik. And uh, at that time, you know, we were all young and brahmacharis, and we would dance till we were soaked every morning. And I mean, we didn't have air conditioning there, and it was, it was muggy and hot in, in St. Louis, Missouri. And I just remember like 30 or 40 of us in the temple room, and him sitting in the back. He was a re- reserve type of person. He was a professor, and he was just watching the whole thing. But I remember later he, he wrote me a letter. I wish I had saved it. But he said uh, how much he admired the, the lifestyle and waking up early, dancing. He'd never seen such a thing. And who has? I mean, if you think about it, the, the devotional lifestyle is it's almost um, sensory overload uh, in a positive sense. And uh, so I really noticed it because of my frame of mind and thinking about Christianity and then Krishna consciousness and the contrast between the two and was uh, noticing very much uh, what a lifestyle we actually have. And um, what people get normally is the uh, dregs of sense gratification in their daily lives. They really get, I mean, there's all kinds of um, so-called sense gratification in the material world that really is... uh, just disturbs the senses and is, is distasteful altogether. I mean, people uh, drink things that are really hard to swallow and make you sick. They smoke things. I see a lot of kids smoking um, some electronic device. I don't know what it is. It's like a, a vape. We went in a vape shop that, where we were selling books. They all took, took books in there, but you know, there's all these different flavors, but it's all smoke. You know, just inhaling smoke. And that's what you get unless you get Krishna consciousness. So it makes a lot of sense that if you're having transcendental sense gratification, that the rest of it would look really dull. I've had this experience at the Los Angeles temple as my wife, Anirakula, was for many, many years and still is, although she handed over the management to somebody else, arranging the, uh, the, the feast for the Rathiatra. And so I would go down there f- uh, for a couple days to, to help out with the cooking in the kitchen. And uh, we'd be engaged, fully engaged for several days. Just, and you don't have to leave um, the, the uh, property there because it's all, all the, the residents are on one side of the street and then the temple's on the other. And everyone you run into is a devotee. Every once in a while, a car goes by, and you think, I wonder who, who those people are. But then I had this experience of being in the kitchen and the temple room for three, four, five days, just fully engaged. And then we were driving to the Rathiatra, which was a few miles away in Venice Beach. And I was looking at the warlike, a war zone kind of situation, people you know, staggering down the street and smoke shops and this and that. And I was thinking, wow, people are still doing that. It's, it becomes just a, a logical conclusion that, of course, I'd rather you know, have Mahaprasadam and sit with high-minded people and so forth rather than struggle in the material world. Okay, so um, now we'll sing a song in which... Uh, yes. 
Okay, Shiva, you didn't get your point. I'm sorry. And I, I probably lost something in translation there. What happened to? So, oh, um, so when you you're reading that Bhagavad Gita chat, yes. I like that part. I was like, I had this doubt. So in the Bhagavad Gita, in, in part it said that any direct, like anything can interfere in your duties. I don't remember, but it was in the last part. Yeah. But then I thought, what if a hurricane can destroy like all your your workplace and all like, your deities? So then what did Prabhupada mean in the purple that nothing can interfere in your duties? <laughs> well, there are circumstances that can be quite dire in which... Uh, for instance, a hurricane could come and blow your house away. And what if you couldn't find your japa beads? <laughs> then, you know, devotees would f uh, continue doing their service by, um, you know, if you couldn't find your japa beads, you could chant on your fingers and count like that. There are uh, there's stories in the, in the Chaitanya Charamrita about uh, Gopinath Patanyayaka. Do you remember him? He got in trouble because he had uh, incurred a debt to the government. He was doing some tax collecting and skimming off the top, so he owed, he owed some money to the government. And the king told his son, the prince, to go get it back. And so the prince had arrested Gopinath Patanayaka. Or he didn't arrest him at first. He just said, would you please pay the debt? So Gopinath Patanayaka brought some fine horses that he had purchased previously and offered them to the prince. And the prince lowballed him. Do you know what that means? He gave him a, a price that was too low because they were good horses, but the prince, the, the, the prince said, you know, he gave him a ridiculously low price, far less than the horses were worth. And so Gopinath Patanayaka insulted the prince. Remember what he said? See, the prince had a, had a tick and he, his neck would go like this and turn up towards the sky while he was talking. So Gopinath Patanayaka said, my horses are worth a lot more than that because they don't do this. <laughs> and the prince, the prince got angry and he said, all right, put him in jail. And then they put him from jail, they took him up to the chunga. You know what the chunga is? The chunga is this platform. This is a little scary, so brace yourself. Can I tell you something scary? Are you sure? You like scary stuff? Okay. So it's a big platform, and it's high off the ground, and it's in public also where people can see. And underneath it, there are there's swords. They're buried in the ground, but just the tips are straight up. So if they were to punish somebody, they wanted to kill them for some reason, they would push them off the chunga, and that person would fall down to the ground and be impaled by these swords. All right? Not so nice. So Gopinath was up top on the Chunga, and, you know, anything could happen. Somebody could make a split decision and say, push him off. But he was up there chanting. He didn't have his beads. He didn't have anything, and he was chanting. He went on chanting Hare Krishna. So this, this was brought up to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu later. You know, people were asking what was he doing when he was on the chunga and he was chanting Hare Krishna and then he, was, he would mark, make a mark on his body to see how many rounds he was doing when he went on chanting. 
So there's a saying in the Bhagavatam. Actually, this was mentioned by uh, Lord Shiva in the context of Chitraketu. The story, Chitraketu got cursed to become a demon by Parvati. Pardon me? Yeah, Vritrasura. He, he got cursed to become a, a demon who turned out to be Vritrasura. And after he was cursed, he said, no problem, I don't mind. And Shiva noted this. He said, Narayanak paraksarve nakutash chana bhibhiti swarga pavarga narakeshu api tuliyarta darshana. Tuliyarta means equal. And what's equal? Heaven or hell. So his point was, it doesn't matter whether the devotee's in heaven or hell, whatever situation he or she is in, that devotee will continue. You're still listening, Keshava. The devotee will continue practicing devotional service. There, where there's a will, there's a way, and the devotees always have a will to continue. Do you, I've, I left something out, and Maybe, please bring it up. To, excuse me. Do you want to finish the story, what you were going to tell to the people who didn't like that their family member was being initiated? Oh, yeah, it was a funny story because, you know, <clears throat> the devotee, uh, came and she brought her whole uh, congregation or uh, most of her friends from the Baptist congregation to her initiation. I really admired her for that. And uh, her, um, her husband, who's a really nice person, but he didn't appreciate the Krishna consciousness. He's, he's a Baptist minister. That's an interesting situation. I mean, how do you give a talk in that cir- circumstance? <laughs> It's a little nerve-wracking because there's some people there for the first time. So I was actually seeing through their eyes. What are they seeing when they walk into a Hare Krishna temple? You know how when you're at home and you have a painting on the wall, you've seen it so many times, but somebody comes over and goes, oh, wow, that's beautiful. Where'd you get that? And you go, oh, that thing? I haven't noticed it for 20 years. And Because we, we get used to it. But when somebody new comes into your environment, then you start to notice things that you didn't before. So I was intensely uh, aware that people were looking at the, the temple and watching the ceremony. In fact, uh, you know, I was a little nervous because my uh, aspiring disciple, just before she got uh, initiated, then she came up and offered obeisances. And, you know, you don't really see that in a Baptist church or any place else that I'm aware of. <laughs> I mean, I remember the first time I walked in the San Francisco temples where I joined and everyone offered obeisance. They're like, what just happened? I mean, <laughs> and so uh, what did I do? I, uh, I muddled through like I usually do. And, and, and uh, I just tried to present from my heart the best I could to accommodate both uh, the devotees who were there to see the initiation and the people there for the very first time who had never you know, imagine that they would find themselves in a Hare Christian temple. What to speak of one of their brethren, you know, taking initiation at that time. So, um, yeah, it was an interesting circumstance. But then, you see, they don't allow fire sacrifices in the temple room because uh, um, little known fact to most Hare Krishna devotees, smoke actually damages the, you know, everything. And so they don't have big fires in the temple room because it's a really... Uh, nice temple room, so they have them elsewhere. And then after uh, I finished the lecture part, some of the devotees who are in on the joke, the inside thing, like, ha, ha, you have to give a lecture to people who are 
Baptist for the first time coming here, you know, they kind of nudged me and said, wait till the fire sacrifice. Actually, <laughs> we don't call it a fire sacrifice. We say it's a fire ceremony because this fire sacrifice sounds a little extreme also, doesn't it? And then, but somehow or other, um, you know, they got through it. And, you know, there was handshaking and appreciation and things like that. But uh, it did give me... A different kind of perspective and, and looking at the whole thing and it goes back to this appreciation of the the sensual engagement that we have transcendentally engaging our senses with transcendental objects and where else do you get that where else do you get prasadam food offered to the supreme personality of God first of all you have to have a supreme personality of God before you can offer him food and what to speak of you know, all the protocol that we have in place. It's a very refined system that we have with uh, so much uh, philosophy behind it. Um, but the, the simple fact is that it's, it's, it's a, a very natural and from the heart type of a process. The both parts are there. And, and that's why it's fortifying and, and, and allows one the opportunity to, uh, even a, a beginner, to rise above the the attractions of the material world, right? Yeah. So here's the translation. When the great soul Narada Muni plays his stringed vena, the holy name Radhika Ramana descends and immediately appears amidst the kirtan of the Lord's devotees. Like a monsoon cloud, the holy name showers pure nectar into their ears. I mean, listen to this poetry. It's fantastic. Due to great ecstasy, all the devotees enthusiastically dance to their heart's content. All the inhabitants of the universe become maddened upon entering these intoxicating showers of divine sweetness. Some people cry, some dance, and others become fully intoxicated within their minds. Five-faced Lord Shiva embraces Narada Muni and repeatedly shouts in ecstasy. Well, can you, I mean, just envision this, would you? Five-faced Lord Shiva embraces Narada Muni and repeatedly shouts in ecstasy while Lord Brahma dances very ecstatically and exclaims, all of you chant, Haribo, Haribo. In supreme happiness, thousand-faced Anantashesha sings and calls out, Hari, Hari. While Lord Brahma dances very ecstatically and exclaims, all of you chant, Haribo, Haribo. In supreme happiness, oh, I, I, uh, <laughs> okay. Um, by the influence of the transcendental vibration of the holy name, the whole universe becomes mad with ecstasy as everyone relishes the mellows of the holy name. The holy name of Sri Krishna has fulfilled all my desires by thus manifesting on everyone's tongue. Bhaktivinoda, the humble servant of the Lord, therefore prays at the feet of Sri Rupa Goswami that the chanting of Harinam may always continue in this way. Bolo bolo hari bolo. See, if any of those gets stuck in your mind, you'll notice that uh, there's transcendental potency in these songs. And just uh, walk away from it. See if you can walk away from it. In the record industry, they're experts, and they can listen to a song and tell if it's a hit or not. And uh, one of the ways they can tell if it's a hit is what they call an earworm. An earworm means that there's something about the song that's haunting and it gets in your, in your ear and then you're walking around, you can't get it out. The companies that sell all kinds of um, soap and 
you know, butter and whatever else, they try to come up with some kind of what they call a jingle. And the jingle, it, it's meant to harmonize and stick in your mind so that, you know, when you're going through the supermarket, then you'll think, oh, yeah, that's the one I want. And so in the same way, this transcendental vibration from the uh, spiritual world, it calls to us. And when it sticks in the mind, we get that earworm, a transcendental earworm. Then the, the vibration actually lifts us above the, the modes of material nature without any effort. The, the vibration is there carrying us along. And we feel uh, protected by this internal potency. And now speaking of the internal potency, I'm going to read to you something from the Sri Chaitanya Charitamrita that will um, permanently change your perspective on life in a very positive way. And if, we, if you wouldn't like that, then there's a holding room over on the side. You can step in there for a minute. We'll call you when, when this part is done. Okay? This is from the Sri Chaitanya Charitamrita, Chapter 9 of the Adi Lila, called The Desire Tree of Devotional Service. <clears throat> Text number 1. Let me offer my respectful obeisances unto the spiritual master of the entire world, Lord Sri Krishna Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, by whose mercy even a dog can swim across a great ocean. Purport, sometimes it is to be seen that a dog can swim in the water for a few yards and then come back to the shore. Here, however, it is stated that if a dog is blessed by Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he can swim across an ocean. Similarly, Haribo. Similarly, the author of Sri Chaitanya Chartamrita, Krishna Das Kaviraj Goswami, placing himself in a helpless condition, states that he has no personal power, but by the desire of Lord Chaitanya, expressed through the Vaishnavas and the Madan Mohan Vigraha, it is possible for him to cross a transcendental ocean to present Sri Chaitanya Chartamrita. Haribo. All glories to Sri Krishna Chaitanya, who is known as Gaurahari. Everyone say. Gaurahari. All glories to Advaita Acharya and Nityananda Prabhu. All glories to the devotees of Lord Chaitanya, headed by Srivas Thakur. In order to fulfill all my desires, I remember their lotus feet. Purport. The author here continues to follow the same principles of worship of the Panchatattva that were described in the seventh chapter of the Adi Lila. I also remember the six Goswamis, Rupa, Sanatan, Bhatta Raghunath, Shi Jiva, Gopal, Bhatta, and Das Raghunath. Purport. This is the process for writing transcendental literature. A sentimentalist who has no Vaishnav qualifications cannot produce transcendental writings. There are many fools who consider Krishna Leela to be a subject of art and who write or paint pictures about the pastimes of Lord Krishna with the gopis, sometimes depicting them in a manner practically obscene. These fools take pleasure in material sense gratification, but one who wants to make advancement in spiritual life must scrupulously avoid their literature. Unless one is a servant of Krishna and the Vaishnavas, as Krishna's Kaviraj Goswami presents himself to be, in offering respects to Lord Chaitanya, his associates, and his disciples, one should not attempt to write transcendental literature. Five, if 
It is by the mercy of all these Vaishnavas and gurus that I attempt to write about the pastimes and qualities of Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Whether I know it or know not, it is for self-purification that I write this book. This is a really important uh, point that the author is making here, and I'll continue with the purport before we discuss it at all. This is the sum and substance of transcendental writing. One must be an authorized Vaishnav, humble and pure. One should write transcendental literature to purify oneself, not for credit. By writing about the pastimes of the Lord, one associates with the Lord directly. One should not ambitiously think, I shall become a great author. I shall be celebrated as an author. These are material desires. One should attempt to write for self-purification. It may be published or it may not be published, but that does not matter. If one is actually sincere in writing, all his ambitions will be fulfilled. Whether one is known as a great author is incidental. One should not attempt to write transcendental literature for material name and fame. So the reason I noted this was because just um, a few days ago when we were down in Bangalore or Bengaluru, we were um, uh, happily engaged with uh, a few hundred devotees in the Sankirtan Yajna. And we, we uh, together performed a monthly Sankirtan festival where we all got to go out to do Harinam and book distribution in the fine city of Beng Bengaluru. And... Um, some of the devotees were um, saying that uh, going out to do a sankirtan sometimes seems a little bit um, what uh, nerve-wracking because what's going to happen when I go out into the great unknown? So what's, what solved that problem for everybody in the room, and we could tell because everybody came out, nobody hesitated, was to change our perspective from thinking that I, I'm a circus animal and I have to perform when I go out and do some tricks and uh, that I'm, I have to uh, pro produce some result to saying that I'm just an instrument. So just try saying that, I'm just an instrument. Doesn't it make you feel better? Yeah, it takes all the pressure off. And you know what? That's what we are. We're instruments. We're to be used by the Supreme Personality of Godhead. And... Uh, what should we do? We should do whatever service we're doing to the best of our ability in order to serve him. And if we do that, uh, there's no, well, I should say rhetorically, where's the anxiety? There should be no problem and no attachment. So if, if I can adjust my attitude, and Prabhupada writes in the preface to the Nectar of Instruction that the, the advancement in devotional service is dependent upon the attitude of, of the uh, performer, if my, I make my attitude that to the best of my ability, I will perform my devotional practice, but I won't do it for myself. I'll do it as a service and um, not for self-aggrandizement or just to show some tricks. Keshava, what do you think of that idea of shifting the attitude? Effective, right? Yeah. So um, this is an important... Uh, well, I would say it's all important to be able to uh, transfer my uh, um, my attitude in this way. And a couple more verses. I take shelter of the Supreme Personality of God at Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who himself is the tree of transcendental love of Krishna, its gardener and also the bestower and enjoyer of its fruits. Lord Chaitanya thought, my name is Vishrambar, 
one who maintains the entire universe. Its meaning will be actualized if I can fill the whole universe with love of Godhead. Thinking in this way, he accepted the duty of a planter and began to grow a garden in Navadweep. Thus the Lord brought the desired tree of devotional service to this earth and became its gardener. He sowed the seed and sprinkled upon it the will, the water of his will, purport. In many places, devotional service has been compared to a creeper. One has to sow the seed of the devotional creeper, Bhakti Lata, within his heart. As he regularly hears in chants, the seed will fructify and gradually grow into a mature plant and then produce the fruit of devotional service, namely love of Godhead, which the gardener, Malakara, can then enjoy without impediments. All glories to Sri Madhavendra Puri, the storehouse of all devotional service under Krishna. He is a desire tree of devotional service, and it is in him that the seed of devotional service first fructified. Purport. Sri Madhavendra Puri, also known as Sri Madhava Puri, belonged to the disciplic succession from Madhvacharya and was a greatly celebrated sannyasi. Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was the third disciplic descendant from Sri Madhavendra Puri. The process of worship in the disciplic succession of Madhvacharya was full of ritualistic ceremonies with hardly a sign of love of Godhead. Sri Madhavendra Puri was the first person in that disciplic succession to exhibit the symptoms of love of Godhead and the first to write a poem beginning with the words Aidina Dayadra Nath, O Supremely Merciful Personality of Godhead. In that poem is the seed of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's cultivation of love of Godhead. Text 11. The seed of devotional service next fructified in the form of Sri Ishvarapuri, and then the gardener himself, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, became the main trunk of the tree of devotional service. Is everyone all right? Yes. Do you like this? Yes. Okay. Purport. Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur writes in his Anubhasya, Sri Ishvarapuri was a resident of Kumarahatta, where there is now a, railway, a railroad station known as Kamarahatta. Nearby, there is another station named Halisahara, which belongs to the Eastern Railway. To which railway? Eastern. Correct. This railway runs from the eastern section of Calcutta. Kumamela starting again. Ishvarapuri appeared in a Brahmana family and was the most beloved disciple of Srila Madhavendrapuri. In the last portion of Sri Chaitanya Charitamrita, it is stated, quote, at the last stage of his life, Sri Madhavendrapuri became an invalid and was completely unable to move. And Ishwarapuri so completely engaged himself in his service that he personally cleaned up, cleaned up his stool and urine, always chanting the Hare Krishna Ma Mantra and reminding Sri Madhavendrapuri about the pastimes of Lord Krishna in the last stage of his life. Ishwarapuri gave the best service among his disciples. Thus, Madhavendrapuri, being very pleased with him, blessed him, saying, My dear boy, I can only pray to Krishna that he will be pleased with you. 
Thus, Ishvara Puri, by the grace of his spiritual master, Sri Madhavendra Puri became a great devotee in the ocean of love of Godhead. Srila Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur states in his Guruvashtaka prayer, Yasya Prasadad Bhagava Prasado, Yasya Prasadad Nagati Kutopi. By the mercy of the spiritual master, one is blessed by the mercy of Krishna. Without the grace of the spiritual master, one cannot make any advancement. It is by the mercy of the spiritual master that one becomes perfect, as vividly exemplified here. A Vaishnava is always protected by the personality, supreme personality of Godhead. But if he appears to be an invalid, this gives a chance to his disciples to serve him. Ishvarapuri pleased his spiritual master by service, and by the blessings of his spiritual master, he became such a great personality that Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu accepted him as his spiritual master. Srila Ishvarapuri was the spiritual master of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, but before initiating Lord Chaitanya, he went to Navadvip and lived for a few months in the house of Gopinatha Acharya. At that time, Lord Chaitanya became acquainted with him, and it is understood that he served Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu by reciting his book, Krishna Lilamrita. This is explained in Sri Chaitanya Bhagavat Adikanda. To teach others by example how to be a faithful disciple of one spiritual master, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the Supreme Personality of God, had visited the birthplace of Ishvara Puri at Komarahata and collected some earth from his birth site. This he kept very carefully and he used to eat a small portion of it daily. This is stated in the Chaitanya Bhagavat, Adikanda, chapter 17. It is now... It has now become customary for devotees following the example of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu to go there and collect some earth from that place. By his inconceivable powers, the Lord became the gardener, the trunk, and the branches simultaneously. Paramananda Puri, Keshava Bharati, Brahmananda Puri, and Brahmananda Bharati, Sri Vishnu Puri, Keshava Puri, Krishnananda Puri, Sri Nishingatirtha, and Sukhanandapuri, these nine sannyasi roots all sprouted from the trunk of the tree. Thus the tree stood steadfastly on the strength of these nine roots. And we'll go into that more. We'll keep reading from this chapter while we're here in the Dham because it's all cream. Right, Navina? When you hear this chapter, you're going to go crazy. So don't come back unless you want to go crazy. Thank you. Vancha kalpadrubhishcha kripa sindhabeva cha patitanam pavani bheo vaishnavibhyo manamunamaha nantakoti vaishnaviniki jai. Nachari armarman, nachari armarman, nachari armarman, nachari armarman.